Go ahead and take your seats and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. What a privilege it is to be able to open our Bibles together. What a privilege it is. You know how many places in the world do not have this privilege? How many places in the world do not even have a copy of God's Word in their own language. There are thousands. We just hit right under, uh, under 4,000. There are well over 3,000 people groups in the world that are unengaged with the gospel. They're unreached. They don't even have a Bible in their own language. They don't know Christ. They've never even heard His name before. It becomes routine for us when we open God's Word on a Sunday morning. We say, hey, turn your Bibles to such and such a passage. But there are places in the world where if I were to say those words, they would have no Bible to turn to. There's also places in the world where it is illegal to own a Bible. It's dangerous to own a Bible. You would be killed for owning a Bible. So those words, take your Bibles out and turn to such and such a passage, it's possible to do that, but under the very threat of persecution and death. There are places in the world where the very real daily potential of dying for Christ hangs over your head. Imagine if we lived in those places. We live in those places and we're going out into the world and we're telling people about Jesus. And we say, hey, you should become a Christian. And if you do, let me forewarn you, you will probably lose your job. You'll lose all of your income. You'll be stripped of all of your wealth and all of your money. Your home will probably be ransacked and robbed and plundered. You will be considered dead by your entire family. You will become the object of shame and of ridicule and of mocking. You will daily face persecution violently, verbally, and deadly. Would you like to join our church? Would you like to follow Christ? There are places around the world, many places, that are just like that. David Platt, many of you know the author, David Platt, author, pastor, um, Bible teacher. David Platt just wrote a book called Something Needs to Change. Very, very good book. I would encourage everyone to read it, recommend it to anybody. Just speaks of taking the gospel. He's walking, he's hiking through the Himalayas and, and uh, sharing Christ with people in the Himalayas and uh, very Buddhist and Hindu places right above India, Nepal, uh, uh, Bhutan, all these different places where the gospel really hasn't even gone into. And he shares a story in this account, in this book, of meeting a woman named Alicia who was born into a Buddhist family, and the day that she was born was considered an evil day by her Buddhist family and her Buddhist relatives. Her grandfather was what they called in the villages a devil talker, so he could speak with Satan. And uh, he would converse with Satan, and he knew what days Satan owned on the calendar, and apparently Alicia was born on one of those days. So the grandfather, when Alicia was born, said for every day that she exists, she needs to go outside and sacrifice or offer something to Satan uh, because she was born on his day. She needs to worship him. And so Alicia remembers worshiping 
Satan and going out and, and offering something. Her parents built her this little shrine outside of the house. They didn't want Satan inside the house, but she had to worship Satan because she was born on an evil day. And so she would go out and she would offer something in this little shrine. Now, again, we're talking Himalayas. We're talking 15,000 feet in the air, and that's a valley in the Himalayas. Mountains tower uh, twice as high above you. And so it's freezing snow constantly, and she'd go out every single day. Until one day, a man who was actually blind and was being led by a tour guide came through their village and said, have you ever heard the name Jesus? And her parents didn't know who Jesus was. And so this man had the tour guide open a Bible in their language, started speaking of Christ, shared Jesus with the family, and the mother and the father and Alicia were saved. When Alicia's grandfather heard of his kids and his granddaughter coming to faith in Jesus Christ, he said, this is a dangerous thing for our village. You have introduced a foreign false god into the village. And if you introduce a foreign false god into the village, bad things will begin to happen in the village. So turn away from Christ. Don't follow him. Alicia's parents said, no, we're going to follow him. We've been changed by the gospel. Alicia remembers her dad changed overnight because of the gospel's impact in his life. And so the village began to ostracize them, began to ridicule them, began to mock them, began to persecute them. And one of the forms of persecution was that they were no longer allowed to use the well that was in the middle of the village, and they were no longer allowed to get food from any of the neighbors. So they had to buy their food elsewhere in a different village, and villages were miles apart. They're trekking through these enormous Himalayan mountains, and they had to get water from different villages. On one occasion, Alicia's parents were walking to another village to get food and water. And Alicia said she saw them leave, and she never saw them come back. And the leaders of the village came to her and brought her out into the town square and said to everybody in the village, We're sad to report to you that Alicia's parents died in a landslide. There was an avalanche, and they died. But this is as we told you would happen to those who worship false gods. Bad things will happen to them. And they would consistently use that. Whenever people would think about coming to Christ, they would say, just remember what happened to Alicia's parents. Bad things happen. Decades later, Alicia found out from someone else who was a part of the mob that attacked her parents that it wasn't a landslide that killed her parents. Her parents were attacked on the way to another village. They were stoned to death by the village leaders, and their bodies were thrown off the mountainside because they loved Jesus. David Platt, in sharing that story, said to Alicia, why would you continue to follow Christ? She said, because he's better than life itself. He's better than life itself. Immediately after Christ speaks to the church in Ephesus, he writes to a church in Smyrna, And the church in Smyrna is very similar to the church that David Platt is speaking to and speaking of in the Himalayas. Persecuted, under the threat of death, suffering. And my friends, this is happening all over the world. We are just so insulated. We're so insulated 
that we don't even know what's happening. That's why, by God's grace, in God's amazing sovereignty, I didn't know when we were going to start the book of Revelation. I didn't know when we were going to end the book of Ruth. We ended when God wanted us to end. We started Revelation when God wanted us to begin. And next Sunday is the day that we set aside, and, and around the world, it's the day that the church sets aside for what we call the International Day of, of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I, and I started reading this letter to Smyrna, and I realized we need to spend two Sundays on this because we're going to talk about the persecuted church today and next Sunday, Lord willing, and highlight what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world. This is happening every single day. There, are more, there were more martyrs in the 20th century alone than in every other century combined. We are being, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, slaughtered all day long. And that's exactly like what the church in Smyrna was going through. One writer says it this way, the Christians in Smyrna were like a, a man who's, uh, over whose head the sword of execution was constantly poised, and he never knew when it might fall. For the Roman government regarded his refusal to conform to the Roman emperor worship as an act of dangerous and disloyal citizen worthy of persecution and of death. Many commentators say that if you were a Christian living in the first and second century, the most dangerous place to live would have been Smyrna. We're reminded as we read through this, as we study it, that being a Christian does not allow you to fit into this worldly system. You will stand out. You have to stand out. And therefore, we must not see it as strange when persecution comes. Just write a couple verses down, just two verses for now, and we'll dive into this passage. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul says that we need to be strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying these words. So these words that Paul told the church to tell the believers, these are words that were meant to encourage believers. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It was encouraging to hear those words. Hey, don't worry. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I personally would think the opposite would be encouraging, right? Hey, don't worry. When you sign up for Christianity, we will never have tribulations. That's encouraging. Peace at all costs. But Jesus said the exact opposite in the Gospel of John, that in this world you are promised to have tribulations. They are going to come. Also write down 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. This is another passage that Paul speaks to Timothy, uh, his apprentice in the faith, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can take this as a money-back guarantee. You will be persecuted if you love Christ and you desire to live for Him. So how should we live in the midst of persecution? What should we think about persecution? What does Christ tell a church that is facing persecution? And what must we think about our brothers and sisters in the world who are going through persecution right now and about persecution that may and more than likely will come into our country as well. Let's read these verses. We will ask God's blessing on our time, and we will seek to answer these questions both this week and next week, Lord willing. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. 
And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I pray that you would give us amazing grace to feel this week and next week, to feel what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world, to feel what it is like to be persecuted. God, prepare us for persecution. It does not seem like it's far off, even in our own country, and though we do not ask for it, though we don't want it to happen, we're not afraid of it happening. God, I pray that you would let these verses inform our thinking of persecution, our thinking about it, what it is, what it does, and how we should feel about it. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need divine assistance. We need help. So be our help this day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We started looking at these uh, seven letters to the seven churches a few weeks ago, and as we started going through them, we noticed that every single letter has seven similar components. They all have the same seven components. They are a greeting, a description of Christ, a declaration of what Christ knows, a criticism to the church, a warning to the church, and an exhortation to the church followed by a promise to the church. So seven-fold outline that we will always be going through because every letter follows the exact same pattern. So this morning we'll cover about four of these, I believe, and then Lord willing we'll finish these up next week. Let's begin with the greeting. The greeting is in verse 8. So point number one, the greeting is in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the greeting that Christ gives to the angel of the church in wherever he's speaking to. These are the seven churches in Asia Minor on that postal route. There was a circular route that would go from uh, Patmos uh, over to Ephesus and then from Ephesus up to Smyrna and then all the way around. So Smyrna is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. So once you finished uh, your uh, dialogue with the believers in Ephesus, you would go on up to Smyrna. So that's why this is second in the list. The Bible does not record for us the founding of the of Smyrna. All we know about it biblically is found in these verses, actually. But we do know a great deal about the church uh, from a historical perspective. So allow me to just speak historically for, for a moment, because I think it will help our understanding of what's actually taking place. We interpret the Bible when we study the Bible. We interpret it. We understand what it means by what it says based on its grammar. Words have meaning. Based on its context, those words get their meaning not only from their own definition, but in context. We take it literally at face value. We don't have to find hidden meanings inside of it, but we also study the Bible historically. What did it mean to them? 
We need to understand what the Bible meant to its original audience. And if we find some meaning in the text that means something for us today that the original audience would never have understood, then we have misunderstood the Bible. So historically, what did it mean to this church? What was this church? Who are these believers in Smyrna? Well, the city began as a Greek colony in 1000 B.C. It became a prominent city around 290 B.C. when Alexander the Great established it. Uh, there are some well-known, very famous people that were born there. Homer, who, uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, he, he wrote uh, those amazing, he spoke those amazing uh, uh, tomes, those stories that are just uh, fantastic. He was born in Smyrna. It was a proudly Greek city. And when they were conquered by the Roman Empire, they maintained their Greek heritage. They willingly took everything that Rome had to offer, including their religion, but it was a very Roman and Greek-esque city. It was a beautiful city. It had a, a street right down the middle of it. It was uh, called the Street of Gold. It was one road that connected every single temple and statue that was in the little town of Smyrna. And it wasn't really a little town. It had one theater alone that had over 20,000 seats in it. So one theater alone that you could sit over 20,000 people in it. The city was destroyed in 177 A.D. by an earthquake. But it was rebuilt by Marcus Aurelius, and the pattern kept on going. It was destroyed by an earthquake and rebuilt, destroyed by an earthquake, rebuilt. To this day, it actually stands as a city. Uh, the city is called Izmir, and Izmir has over 2 million people living in the city. It's a beautiful coastal uh, city. It's in modern-day Turkey. They minted their own coins in Smyrna. They were very, very wealthy. That's why Christ is going to say, uh, you are rich, but you're poor, but you're rich. He's going to speak to that issue that they are wealthy people. They, they minted their own coins, and on their coins, they put this phrase, first in Asia in beauty and size. First in Asia in beauty and in size. So this is just a magnificent, beautiful city. If Ephesus, uh, which we studied uh, the last two weeks, if Ephesus was San Francisco, then Smyrna is more like Monterey, just a beautiful coastal city. If Ephesus is Los Angeles, then Smyrna is on the coast, like Ventura or Oxnard, just a beautiful place on the coast. Let's talk religion, though, in Smyrna. When the Romans came in, they established the city as one that would have huge political ties to Rome, and there was a huge temple that had already been built. And in, nine, in 195 B.C., uh, there was this temple that was erected to uh, Dea Roma, which is the goddess of Rome. And in A.D. 23, Rome chose the city of Smyrna over 10 other cities. There was a drawing, there was kind of a lottery about who is going to get the capital of worship in Rome. And Smyrna won. It's the capital of worship, religious worship in Rome, specifically to the gods, the Roman gods, but also to the Roman emperors. This is when Domitian, uh, who is a Caesar, took over. He said, I don't just want this temple to worship the Roman gods. I want this temple to worship me as God. Now that's important to know. Because every citizen, after Domitian began his reign of terror, uh, specifically against the Christians, every citizen in Smyrna was required to burn incense to the emperor. And if they did not burn incense, then they would not get this certificate 
that said you had burned the incense. And if you did not have the certificate, you could be thrown into jail, your property would be seized by the government, and you could be killed. And that was happening left and right in this city. The city of Smyrna gets its name from a Greek term which translates the Hebrew word myrrh. Uh, myrrh is a word that just means bitter. It's a, it's a spice, it's a fragrance that would be used as a perfume uh, for the living. For some people that were alive, it would be used as a perfume, but it was also used to embalm uh, the dead. And like myrrh, producing a crushing, uh, produced by crushing a beautiful, fragrant plant, the church at Smyrna was crushed by persecution, and it gave off this fragrant aroma to Christ and to those who are around them. There was a church that was planted there. Obviously, that's why there are believers there. And you can actually still go today to the place where the original church was in the city. They have built on top of it to preserve its place. It's the oldest church in Asia to this day. And the church continued to grow. Uh, it's very interesting to note that out of all of these seven locations, only Smyrna contains a church that still uh, goes back to the time of Jesus' writing. Every single uh, other place of these seven letters that go to seven different churches, all of the churches were removed. Their lampstand was taken out, but Smyrna continued. It exists even to this day. And every other city, uh, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, Sardis, every other city is gone as an ancient city, but Smyrna has been built on top of its ancient ruins and is still there today. So we have the greeting. Point one, we have a greeting, we have an understanding of this city is a beautiful city. It's also owned by Rome, and Rome is desiring and commanding its citizens to offer incense in the temple to worship the Roman emperor, Domitian. Let's look at number two, the description of Christ. We have the greeting, the angel of the church in Smyrna, and then number two, we have the description of Christ, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life says this, the first and the last. Remember, all these descriptions we found in chapter 1. We saw them all in chapter 1 of who Christ is. And now every single one is being taken and placed in a relevant place to each specific church. And you can see that here. There's a relevant reason why Jesus says, hey, remember who I was in chapter 1? This is who I am to you specifically, Smyrna. Number one, he says, I'm the first and the last. That's an Old Testament title for God. You could look at Isaiah 41, verse 4, Isaiah 44, verse 6, or Isaiah 48, verse 12. These are Old Testament descriptions of God, Old Testament titles for Yahweh. And Jesus says, I am Yahweh. I am God. This affirms the deity of Christ. As we uh, dialogued about this morning in our Sunday school, the deity of Christ is affirmed everywhere in the Bible, the preexistent nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, is affirmed everywhere. It's affirmed here. He calls himself a, a title that only God uses, so therefore he is God. He's also eternal. He's preexistent. First and last means I've never had a beginning and I will never have an end. I've never had a beginning, I'll never have an end. And by the way, that is crucial for the, the Christians in Smyrna to hear. Because what Jesus is saying is, I am eternal. I'm technically outside of time itself. I see everything that's happening. I know everything that's happening. I'm sovereign over it all. Therefore, what you are going through is not a surprise to me. He does not look at these believers and say, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't know this was going to happen to you. If I had known, I would have done something about it. 
No, in fact, if you drop down to verse 10, he specifically says, because he's sovereign, because he's eternal, I know that you will have tribulation for 10 days. I know when you're going to have tribulation. I know how you're going to have tribulation. I know how long you're going to have tribulation. And I know that there's an end to it. I know there's an end to it. So he calls himself the first and the last. He's eternal. He's sovereign. Now, there's another reality that is just beautiful and and profound in its irony. Emperors would take upon themselves a title. And as you were to go as a Christian believer in Smyrna, you were going to go to the temple to worship. And if you were going to worship the emperor, you would worship him for a, a number of reasons. And one of the things that you would say about him that is worthy of his worship is you would say he is, Domitian the emperor is the first and the last. You would say that title. And so Jesus says, you're not worshiping the emperor who claims to be the first and the last. You're worshiping the true first and last, only God. But he doesn't just stop there. I am the first and the last. Who was dead? I was dead. I came to be dead. I was killed. Jesus says, I died. I can identify with you, Smyrna, because I knew persecution. I was persecuted. I was killed. But I did not stay dead. That's why we sang the song, He rose, the grave and death are conquered. He is still not in a grave. He's alive right now. He's not still dead. His bones are not in a tomb. He's alive. And if we go back to chapter 1, not only is he alive, but he holds the keys of death and of Hades. He owns death and Hades. No one can die before he says, now is your time. So, he identifies with the believers in Smyrna by saying, I died and I have been victorious over death. Therefore, though you die, you will be victorious over death as well. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will never die. So he says, believers in Smyrna, though you die, you will never die. And just like Jesus, the church in Smyrna can and should anticipate ultimate victory. Though they're being slaughtered for the name of Christ, they will be victorious. What a beautiful description of Christ our Savior. Number three, we have the greeting, we have a description of who Jesus is. Number three, we have a description of what Christ knows. A description of what Christ knows knows. This is verse 9 all the way down. There's a little bit of uh, what he knows in every single verse from this point forward. Let's look at what he knows. He knows three main things about this church. Number one, he knows their tribulation. Number two, he knows their poverty. And number three, he knows that they're ridiculed by the Jews. So we'll go through this one by one. A description of what Christ knows. He starts off by saying, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. One of the things that strikes me right up front about Christ's description of what he knows, he does not say, I know you're going through hard times, but come on, suck it up, you'll be fine. He does not say, though it's difficult, it really shouldn't be difficult because you will conquer, you will ultimately be victorious. He says, I know that this is hard. He is tender, he's compassionate, he acknowledges their suffering. He does exactly what He calls us to do as believers, to weep with those who weep. He holds every tear that we cry in a bottle. He knows our every weakness. And so he says to this church, I know what you're going through. 
the hardship that you're going through, I'm right there with you. I'm going through it with you. He loves them. He doesn't disregard or downplay the reality of their hurt. He loves them. So he says this, number one, I know your tribulation. Tribulation, these are burdens that crush in on you. It comes from a word that actually refers to an earthquake that the church in Smyrna knew about. They had been through several earthquakes, and Jesus uses that word, something that crushes you, something that shakes you to your core. Sometimes it can be a physical pain, a pressure physically. Sometimes it can be used to speak of somebody who's going to war, uh, uh, tribulation, fighting in war. Sometimes it can be used to speak of a person in the midst of famine um, who is going hungry. It can even be used to speak of a person in the middle of childbirth. You're going through great pain in the middle of childbirth. But I love how Jesus says, I know your tribulation. He doesn't specify all of it. He'll specify some of it, but he doesn't specify every aspect of the tribulation. I love that because tribulation can be different for different people. You might be going through something that to you is incredibly difficult. To somebody else, it doesn't seem like a difficult thing to go through. But Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know the difficulty you are going through, and I'm right there with you. I know your tribulation. Secondly, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. You are poor, but then my Bible has a parenthetical statement, but you are rich. You're poor. This doesn't just mean that they don't have money. There's a word in Greek for poor, like, oh, you don't have a lot of money, but you still have some money. And then there's a word in Greek that means you have absolutely nothing. You're completely destitute. That's this word. You have absolutely nothing. That's why it says your poverty, not that you're poor. You have absolutely nothing. So the question is, why are they so destitute in such a rich city? This is one of the most uh, flourishing cities in all of Asia Minor. This city is so magnificent. It has so much money pouring through it. So why do they have nothing? Well, you have to go back to the greeting. What was going on in Smyrna? You had to, if you wanted to be able to do business and commerce in the city of Smyrna, you had to have a certificate that said, I went to the temple, I sacrificed, I offered incense to the Roman emperor, I worshiped him as God. And if you did not do that, you would not get the certificate. And if you did not get the certificate, your house could be taken, your business would be taken, you could not do. It's kind of like what we have today with those, those letters, right? If you see a, a D or an F on a restaurant, probably not going to go there. Uh, if you have an A there, it's like, yes, this is clean, this is good. It's kind of like what they had back then in Smyrna. If you didn't have the certificate, it was really a pass or fail. It's not a, a middle ground. If you don't have that certificate, people are not going to be doing business with you because in a matter of, of time, you are going to be put into jail and probably killed. So there are two people groups in Smyrna who refused to worship Caesar as Lord. You could probably guess who they are, the Christians and the Jews. But the Jews had a pact with the Romans. They made a pact, and their pact was, we're not going to worship Caesar as God, but why don't you check the certificates? Why don't you check them? Why don't you go around and check the certificates in the commerce, in the business world? Why don't you go around and check them, let's say, on Saturday? Now, why would a Jew say that? Because they're not going to be doing business on Saturday because it's the Sabbath. And Rome said, okay, fine. You don't worship the emperor as God. We won't check your certificate on Saturday because you're going to be at home. You're not going to be uh, doing business. But the Christians are doing business on Saturday. They're fine doing that. And so the Jews remove themselves from this penalty, whereas the Christians 
receive the full force of it. So, Jesus says, I know that you are destitute. I know your poverty. You have nothing. Your houses have been taken away. Your land has been taken away. Your job has been taken away. You have nothing. But even though you're economically poor, you are spiritually rich. You are a bazillionaire, even though you have nothing. My question to us this morning is, which would we rather be? Which would you rather be? Economically rich and spiritually poor, or economically poor and spiritually rich? Which would you rather be? Jesus says, you have all the riches in the world in Christ because you have him. Yeah, you don't have a house. You don't have much food. Even your family is being killed, but you're rich. I would personally much, much prefer to be spiritually rich and economically poor if given the option and the choice. This also reminds us a very important question that we have to ask ourselves. What does it take in the midst of suffering, trials, and persecution, what does it take for you and for me to be discouraged? What does it take to discourage us spiritually? Because it could be for these believers that they would say, I've had enough, I've lost my home, that's it. Or I've had enough, my business has been taken away from me, that's it. Or I've had enough, I have no more money, that's it. What does it take for you to be discouraged? What does it take for you to say, that's it, I'm done? I have people tell me, you know what, I'm not going to go to this specific church because they changed their style of music and I have had enough of that different style of music. If that's you, you're not going to make it in Smyrna, right? If you say, I'm sorry, just the style of music is, is just, it's not what I like. You're not going to make it when a sword is hanging over your neck. Some people say, I don't like the idea of getting baptized. Why? Well, I don't like talking in front of people. You're not going to be able to make it in Smyrna. You're not going to be able to make it in hard times because in our cultural Christianity in America, it's just, hey, you've got to be baptized in front of people and people say, I'm, I'm too scared to speak in front of people. In other places in the world, if you get baptized, you will probably be killed. If you start saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to be baptized, you will be killed for your faith. How quickly do we just give up and cave under discouragement? The Smyrna believers did not cave. Contrast Smyrna with Ephesus. Contrast what happened in Smyrna with what was happening in Ephesus. Ephesus had amazing doctrine. They had amazing deeds. They had it all going for them on the outside, but they had no love for Christ on the inside. Contrast that with Smyrna. They had nothing going for them on the outside. Yes, they had right doctrine and good deeds, but they had nothing going for them on the outside. They had only their love for Christ, and that was all that they needed. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and I also know your poverty, but you are rich. Yes, you have nothing, but you are rich. Cling to the riches that you have in Christ. Finally, number three, he says, I know the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews, but they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. I know the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews, but they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. I, I, just, I call this the ridicule of the Jews, the ridicule by the Jews, from the Jews. Not only does Jesus say, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but I also know that you are being laughed at, mocked and ridiculed by those around you. Why? Let's think through some of the Let's think through some of the trials that they would have faced, the ridicule that they would have faced by 
other Jews around them. Jewish, a Jewish man would say, where is your God? Where is your God? And we would say, well, uh, our God is invisible, and yet he became a man, and he lived among us, and he walked among us. That's blasphemy to a Jew, that God would become a man and live and walk among us, that he would serve us, that he would die for us, that he would be killed by the Romans. That's blasphemous to a Jew. No, he can't die. If you believe he's God, there's no way he can die. They would just ridicule him over and over again. You don't believe in God. You don't worship God. And in fact, this became labels for the the Christians in Smyrna and in Asia Minor. They were labels that were placed upon them by the Jews and given to the Romans, and the Romans started killing Christians for these things. They called them atheists. They did not believe in a God that was tangible, that had some uh, form of an altar or some form of a presence of an idol or something that was there. They didn't believe in God at all because you can't see him. They were killed in the Colosseum in Rome. Believers were killed to the chance of away with the atheists. Because where is our God? There's no physical evidence of our God in a temple. Christians were also killed for being cannibals. They were labeled by the Jews as cannibals. This is because we partook of communion. And in partaking of communion, Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. Obviously, we do not believe that those are physically Jesus's body and his blood. We are not cannibals. These are symbols. These are representations. These remind us of what happened. But the Jews would ridicule them. Oh, you, you partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you're cannibals. They were also labeled incestuous because we call one another brother and sister. We're brother and sister, and yet we get married as brother and sister. That's incest. And so they were labeled incestuous. They were also labeled insurrectionists because they did not worship Caesar, but they claimed to be citizens of another kingdom. So all these labels were placed upon Christians, and they were killed because of these labels. They were killed because of these things. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says to people like the Christians in Smyrna, you are blessed when people say all kinds of evil against you. And the opposite is true. Woe to you when men speak well of you. So Jesus says, I know that you are being ridiculed. I know it, but that's okay because these Jews that claim to be Jews aren't actually Jews. What is that saying? Turn to Romans chapter 2. I think this will just help our understanding of what Jesus means when he says they are Jews, but they're not Jews. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So though they may be ethnically Jewish, they're not true Messianic Jews who believe in Christ the Messiah. So though they are Jews, they're not Jews. Though they are Jews ethnically, they're not Christians. They don't love Christ their Messiah. In fact, they are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but they are of the synagogue of Satan. This is a very interesting uh, note. Uh, Historically, the synagogue that was in Smyrna, that the Jews used to worship in, in Smyrna, that synagogue said the synagogue of the Lord, of Yahweh, the synagogue of Yahweh. 
And Jesus says, oh, I know that the Jews are worshiping in the synagogue of Satan. They have authentic praise. They have passionate worship, and yet it is directed in the wrong direction, and therefore it's false. He does not say that they're mistaken, but they have a genuine heart. He does not say they're, they're going the wrong direction, but they really have a love for God. He says that they're worshiping the devil himself. This is another reminder yet again to the church in Smyrna. There is only one way to God. All paths do not lead to the same place. Every false religion is ultimately demonically inspired. And Jesus says, you Christians in Smyrna, you're following Christ. And even though you're being ridiculed, you are following the way, the truth, and the life. So don't lose heart. The Jews were ultimately hypocrites, claiming to worship Yahweh and living in a lifestyle of ridicule and persecution with those around them. This begs the question for us, how do we worship? Are we similar to the Jews who have external worship of God, but on the inside they have no heart change that's been wrought in them by the Holy Spirit? Are we similar to the Jews in our own hypocrisy? Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know the things that you're going through. I know it. Hold fast to Christ. Don't lose heart. Finally for this morning, number four, uh, we'll get to five, six, and seven next week, Lord willing, but number four, criticism. Criticism. The third thing that, or the fourth thing that pops up in every single letter, we have a greeting, we have a description of Christ, we have a declaration of what he knows, and then we have a criticism. And usually, following the declaration of what we know, the criticism is, but I have this against you. You remember in the church in Ephesus, uh, I know that you, your deeds are good. You, you do not tolerate the Nicolaitans and their deeds, which I also hate. All these things I know about you, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Here, he says, I know these things about you, but there is no but. There is no criticism. Under point number four, criticism there is zero criticism. And there's only two churches in these seven churches, in these letters to the seven churches, there's only two that have absolutely no criticism whatsoever. Smyrna is one of them. Philadelphia is the other. There's no criticism to be found. And I believe that this is the point that needs to be made at this point in the sermon, at this juncture in this letter. There is no criticism for a persecuted church. There's no ounce of hypocrisy in a persecuted church. Why? The, the, the persecuted church is the purest church. The purifying fires of affliction have caused the lamp of their testimony to burn all the more brightly. And so Jesus says, I have nothing against you. I have nothing against you. We know this reality that suffering and persecution produces righteousness in us. If we don't kick against it, if we stay under it, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you know it, consider it all, all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's this church. They're not lacking in anything. Jesus doesn't say, well, you're being persecuted, but this I have against you. No, they're living out what James 1 says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, 
Peter writes, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but you resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the most persecuted church of these seven churches is the purest church. Hypocrites don't stay to face persecution. They'll run. Persecution strengthens and refines genuine faith, and it destroys false faith. That's why I don't pray for persecution. I don't ask God, please send us persecution. Um, I would very much enjoy living, uh, as Paul says, under uh, leadership that gives us, a government that gives us peace in the land. I would love to live like that for the rest of my life and, and die a very happy and old man in my bed, right? Just close my eyes and sleep in this life, open my eyes, awake in the next life in front of Jesus Christ. That's, I would love for that to happen. But I'm also not afraid or scared of persecution coming into America. There's no reason to be afraid or scared. I'm not praying that it happens, but if it happens, it will be a good thing. It will be a good thing because nominal Christianity, being a Christian by title only, by name only, will go out the window very quickly. We will know who really loves Jesus when persecution comes to America, and we will know who was just playing the game. And yes, it will weed out the church, but it will do a good job of doing that because the people that were in the church weren't truly of the church. And that's why they'll leave. We don't have to be afraid of persecution. Persecution has a way of purifying the church. It weeds out the fakers and the hypocrites and the Christians who are Christian by title only. This is why there are a lot of people in persecuted places in the world that tell us as believers in America, please do not pray that persecution ends. We're going to learn this next week when we study the persecuted church together. They say, please don't pray. You're praying for the wrong things. If you're praying, God, take this away. Take persecution away. They are saying persecution has grown the church. So don't take persecution away. Just pray that we would be faithful in the midst of it. We're dying for Christ. Just pray that we'd be faithful in the midst of it. Pray that our faith would be strong. The irony of the gospel, and we're going to talk in depth about this next week, Lord willing, but the irony of the gospel, the irony of the church that Christ has redeemed for himself is when people want to kill it, they try to do so by killing it. They try to do so by killing Christians. And when they do that, it grows. Every time persecution enters into the church, it grows. It just in leaps and bounds grows. The way to stop a church from growing, don't tell the government these secrets, but if you want to stop the church from growing, just let the church compromise on everything. Then it will grow in numbers, but it will grow in nominal Christianity and true Christians. Make it easy to be a Christian. Make it easy and the church will start to shrink. Make it hard to be a Christian. Try and kill the church with actual physical death, and the church will grow. There's so much to say about this. There's so much more to say about this, and this is why we're going to talk about this all next week. But I just, 
I want to end by asking two questions. What are, what are your thoughts about persecution and are you ready to face it? What are your thoughts about persecution and are you ready to face it? Do you think persecution is bad or do you, like the Bible says, understand and what church history tells us, understand that persecution ultimately brings life to the church? What's your view of persecution? And are you ready to face it? If you're like me, you say, mm, no, <laughs> not ready. Um, I pray that God will make me ready. You remember Corey Tenboom? Corey Tenboom uh, was talking to her father. They were in uh, the middle in the 1940s, in the middle of 1930s, 1940s, in the middle of uh, Jews being taken um, by Nazi Germany. And Cory Tenboom knew friends that were being taken, that were being taken to concentration camps. She knew that there were people that were hiding them, that were ultimately being killed. And Cory Tenboom said, I don't know if I could bear facing you being taken away from me. I don't think I could stand you dying. I don't think I have enough faith to go through that moment. And her dad said, many of you know these words, her dad said, Cory, when we go on a trip, when do we get the ticket to go on the train to take us on our vacation? And she said, on the day of, right? We're going to the ticket booth. We get the ticket. We give it to the guy, the conductor, and we hop on the train. And Corey Ten Boom's father said it's the exact same thing with persecution. You don't have the ticket of grace needed to preserve you through the trial of persecution right now because you're not going through persecution right now. But when the day comes, her dad said, when the day comes, God will give you that ticket. And we know her testimony, amazing, one of the most amazing testimonies. We know her testimony. God gave her the grace to endure severe persecution. And because of that grace that God gave her in that moment, she told thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions through her testimony of who Christ is. That he's better than life itself. Take this life. Jesus is better. What do you think about persecution? And are you ready to face it? Let's ask God to confirm these things to our hearts this morning and even dialogue about it as we enjoy our picnic together and just think through. And we'll come back next week and we'll pray together for the persecuted church. We'll spend the majority of our time next Sunday, next Lord's Day, just thinking about the persecuted church and what Jesus says in the end of this letter to believers who are being persecuted today. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace, your love, your kindness. God, I pray that you would in... Um, in a miraculous way, produce in us a supernatural understanding of the grace that will be ours in the moment of trial, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of persecution. God, prepare in us, even now, for that day. Give us a right mindset. Give us a right understanding of what is to come. And God, I pray that you would instill in us just a... Um, a refined understanding of what persecution truly is, what it means for us. God, that you would give us a love for Jesus that would say, take everything from me, even my own life, and give me Christ and I have everything I need. It's only possible by your Spirit, so enable us to confirm these truths to our hearts even as we sing. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.